If you have your, uh, if you have a text uh, with you or a device, I want you to take it and fir- turn to First John chapter three, verses one uh, to ten. And uh, this is our sixth installment of First John. Um, now, just so you know, we have five more, but we are going to uh, uh, look at those after Christmas. Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to start our Christmas uh, series, and uh, we'll pick up First John in the new year. So let's stand together, and uh, we are going to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Uh, actually, we are not going to read. I'm going to read it for you. And this is what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness, sin is lawlessness You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one. Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother and or sister. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, we thank you again for your grace and your love and your mercy that you have shown so extravagantly, so graciously in through and is Jesus Christ. And for the work of the Holy Spirit that takes everything you've done in Jesus accomplished in him and makes it possible, applicable, and available in our lives. And we're grateful that we can say that we are God's sons and daughters and that, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being co-labors together with you. And, Father, we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and, Lord, particularly as we go out into our lives, into our homes, with our families, our spouses, where it applies, and with our children, and where we go to work, and where we go to school, and who we interact with when we buy and get our services, that we would live in such a way through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would live through us in such a way that people will know that we are the sons and the daughters of God. And we ask this, of course, in Jesus' name, amen. 
And why don't you be seated? How big is God? That is a question that is asked by a child. It's asked by an unbeliever or a skeptic, a scoffer, and by believers. How big is God? Well, John sort of answers that question for us in his way of how big is God. John says that God is big enough to claim to calm the greatest storms within us. He says in 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God is big enough to overcome the fiercest enemy around us. John tells us in 4.4, for he who is in you, in me, in us, is greater than he that is in the world. God, God's word is big enough to revoke any spoken word against us. John says again in 5.9, if you, if we receive the testimony of men, of people, the testimony of God is greater. In other words, what people speak over us and speak against us is just the testimony of human beings. But what matters most is what God speaks over us. And it's why it's important to know his word. And then the last thing that God is, God's love is big enough to set us free and to make us the sons and daughters of God. And that brings us to, us to our text where John says, See what kind of love the Father has given us to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And so that brings us then to a love that surprises one of the distinguishing qualities and characteristics of God's love is that it always comes as a bit of a surprise to us. What kind of love is this? Well, John says that God's love is a love that is unique from any other love that we have ever known or a love that we have ever, ever shown. His love is the only love in the universe that is rooted in not wanting us to fulfill a need. Do you get that? God's love is the only love in the universe that is not rooted in wanting us to fulfill a need. Now, I know that we love people in our lives. But let's be honest, our love is not completely unconditional. Because I love my wife, but... When she does things for me, it's kind of good for me. And likewise for all of us. But God's love is a love that is completely different. God does not need anything. Not a thing. Matter of fact, if God actually did need something, he would not be God. God is self-sufficient, meaning that he is free to love us in a completely unique way because he does not need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from you, and he doesn't need anything from me. Listen to what Jesus says in, as he prays in John 17. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The love that exists between the three members 
of the Holy Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a love like no other love that we have ever experienced. Someone sent me an email a couple of weeks ago. It was a great email. And they asked this question. They, they asked, why is it so important that we love God? And then they added, he's God Almighty. Why is it so important that we should and have to love or need to love God? Well, that's a great question. And here was my response. This is the best answer I can come up with. Now, we know that God, as I mentioned a moment ago, is triune. He is Trinitarian. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. I know. Don't even try to get your head around it. It's not worth it. But follow this. The life within the Holy Trinity, the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a community, a relationship of perfect love, communion, perfect communication, peace, joy, and harmony. Now, God, because he's God, wanted to share the life that was in, that is in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. He wanted to share that love with creatures who could, number one, enjoy it, receive it, and then return it. So God wanted to share this perfect love and harmony and peace and relationship in the Holy Trinity with you and I. Think about it like this, and you've heard me say this before. It's the reason why we have children in a healthy sense. We meet somebody, we fall in love, we get married, and out of that relationship of love and joy and excitement, the natural thing that we want to do is we want to share this love and this joy and this relationship that we have with our spouse. We want to share it with another creature who can receive it, who can enjoy it, but also can return it. This is why we have children. That's why God created us, not because he needed anything because as I said a moment ago he's sovereign if he needed anything he cannot be God God is self-sufficient and we are his children who receive who enjoy and who return his love the way our children receive enjoy and return our love we delight in our children because they are ours now God says to the prophet Jeremiah listen to this I have loved you He's talking about Israel, but the church by extension. I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that will never end. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, I know it is difficult for us to get our heads around that kind of love. Matter of fact, the translators of the text that we just read, verse 1, actually had the same difficulty because they couldn't agree upon a translation. Now, our text says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's not the best translation in the English Standard Version. It's kind of bland, if the truth were told, and it's kind of flavorless and tasteless. 
Now, the King James Bible, the authorized Bible, does a little bit better, and it says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That's okay. And then, of course, Peterson in the message says this, and, and this is good too. He says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. But the best by far, the best translation is what is translated in the New International Version. And the New International Version puts it like this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Great love that has been lavished. The word, the word lavish means heaped. It means poured. It means showered. It means smothered in a good sense. There's such a thing as bad smothering love, isn't there? But God's love is lavished upon us. Now, Peterson gets a, close to this. When he says in this 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, he says this, the amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The extravagant love. Another great aspect of God's love is this. It is not just that God loves the mass of people in general. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Yes, God loves all people. But it's more than this. It's that God's love is also intensely particular, specific. It's not a sentimental, vague feeling that is something like Charlie Brown's attitude when he says, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. Now, most of us, we can give mental assent to the notion of God's love. But what is more difficult is this. For you and I to live our lives rooted and established in the truth that God not only loves people specifically, or rather loves people in general, but he loves you and me particularly. Now pause for a moment. And just in your head, in your mind, say this. God loves me specifically. God loves me particularly. Now, just think about that. Just let that roll around in your mind for a moment. It's easier to let it roll around in our minds than to live out of that, isn't it? Because we have such negative attitudes and so many different things have been said to us that has taken the rug out from on us, under us throughout our lives. But God loves persons is the point. God loves individuals that God loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves you particularly. Another way of putting it is this. God delights in you. God delights in you, in you, and in you, and in you that are watching online. God delights in you. The fact 
that you and I exist. The fact that I exist, the fact that you exist, is a good thing to God. This is what John is trying to tell us. But not only is God's love intensely particular, it is also intensely personal. John provides this wonderful biblical image of our true identity. That we are the children of God. Now somebody has said that certain phrases are like batteries. If they get used too much, they begin to lose their power. And I think that the phrase, children of God, is one of those phrases that sort of fits into that, care, that category. It's been used so much that we've kind of lost its, it's kind of lost its edge to us. But there's still so much voltage in it that John uses it here to remind us of who we are. There's a, there's a book called The Whisper Test. And it'll explain, in the story I'm going to tell you in a moment, it'll explain to you what The Whisper Test is. And this, is the, this story that I'm going to tell you is the main point in the book. And the author is speaking, and she says this, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When my classmates asked me, what happened to your lip? I would tell them that I had fallen and cut it on a piece of glass because I figured it was more acceptable to understand that I suffered an accident than I was actually born this way, was born different. She said, I was convinced that no one outside of my family loved me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. And annually, she said, at that time, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. And it worked something like this. I knew that from past years that we stood against the door and covered one ear, and the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper, and we would have to repeat it back to her, things like, the sky is blue. Do you have new shoes? But she said, I waited there for those words that God must have put in her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. God in his love whispers to us, to you, to me, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. There's another reason why God's love is intensely particular and personal, because it is a love that is wrapped in a particular person. And of course, that is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, John gives us two different reasons why Jesus came. 
The first one, he says that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One of the things you got to love about John, he is not reluctant to talk about the devil. Several times, actually, in our chapter, and continuing in the latter part of chapter 3, he talks about the devil. The word devil comes from the word uh, deblios in Greek. It means slander or false accuser. We know what it is from Revelation 12, 10. That Satan is called there, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And John says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What he means is to unloose and unbind and undo the devil and his works. You see, here's the deal. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus can unscramble the eggs of what the devil and our sin has done. And that brings us to this. The other thing that John is not reluctant to talk about, not only the devil, but John is not afraid to talk about sin. And he says that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to take away sins. But more specifically now, we need to talk about sin in the way that we talk about God's love. Jesus did not just die for the mass of humanity. Now understand, don't go away here thinking that I'm some heretic. I understand and believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. But that's not John's point here. That point is made all in other places in the Gospel of John. But John's point here is this. It is more than just Jesus dying for the sins of humanity in general. He is talking about God, Jesus' death in the way he talks about God's love. That Jesus' death is intensely particular and personal. Jesus died for me. And Jesus died for you. That's what John means. It is particular and it is personal. And John says, I love what he says in verse 5. He says, you know, of course we know, don't we? You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. It is particular and it is personal. And that brings us to this, a love that reappears. John says in verse 3, and this is probably what makes this text one of the greatest texts in the entire Bible. And I know I say that on a regular basis, but it really is. He says in verse 2, he says, beloved, listen to what it says. Now listen to what it says. He says, beloved, that's us, beloved. We are God's children now, right now, at this very moment. And what we will be is not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears the second time, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Now, Paul in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 refers to this as waiting for our blessed hope. He actually writes and says, waiting for our blessed hope. The blessed hope is this, the appearing, the reappearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I don't need to tell most of us, but some of us, I need to tell you this. The first time Jesus appeared, he came as a baby. Dependent, vulnerable, 
and needy like any other child. But when he comes again, it will not be anything like that. The book of Revelation tells us in 1916, and that's a lot of text, then I saw heaven open, John is speaking the same writer, John says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True in capital letters, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, his eyes are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, that will be us, by the way, and the angels arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus reappears, his reappearance is going to be dramatic. It is going to be demonstrative. And for some people, it is going to be traumatic. But not only that Jesus will reappear, but when he does, we will see him like he is. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? says that when we see him. My dad died, I don't know, 25 years ago. I wonder what he looks like now. What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, I get that question a lot. Uh, Pastor, what will it be like when we get to heaven? What, are my, what do my loved ones look like now that they're in heaven? Well, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says this, But our citizenship is from heaven, or in heaven rather, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is verse 21, which is one of the most important statements in the Bible. Listen to what it says. Who will transform our lowly body, our earthly body, our physical body, to be like his glorious body. And so the question is then, what was Jesus' body like after he was resurrected? Now, you do understand that God is spirit, right? And that the only person of the Godhead that we will see when we get to heaven is we will see Jesus because he has a human body and his humanity is forever. That's one of the reasons why he is our representative. He took on human flesh in Bethlehem, or rather in the womb of Mary, and was born in Bethlehem, and his humanity and his body and his flesh are forever, forever, forever. Now, what will we be like when we get to heaven? Well, first of all, you and I will have a body and a soul. We will not be floating around in heaven in bodiless, with bodiless souls. That's why it's important to understand what Jesus' resurrection, sorry, why it's important to understand that Jesus' resurrection was a physical bodily resurrection. 
He was not a ghost. He was not a spook like Casper. In Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus says to the disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, glorified bodies is a promise for all believers as a result of Jesus' resurrection. But some of us have no idea what our glorified bodies will be like. Now, with that said, I need to say this in the same breath, that the biblical text does not give us everything we need or would like to know. But it does give us some clues. And John says in verse 2, he says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Or, if we beat him to heaven before he comes back, when we see him, we shall be like him. The same point. Jesus, as I said, is the only person of the Holy Trinity that has a physical body in heaven. Now, let that seep into your brains for a moment. I know it's a lot. It's a lot. Our resurrected bodies will be different than our present bodies, but the same. Now, I know that some of us have body image problems. That's on us, not on God. Now, you understand? Some of us are short, and some of us are tall, and some of us are petite, and some of us are big-boned. Now, the good news, or slash the bad news. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. The body you have now is forever. Now, you're going to get some upgrades, some nips and tucks and all those kinds of things. But your human body, my human body, is forever. And why we know this is because of this. We understand that when we get to heaven, like Jesus, after our resurrection, we are going to be recognizable. Just as the disciples were able to recognize Jesus after his resurrection, the same way in which they recognized him before the resurrection. You see, let's say in 10 years' time you meet me in Germany. And you're looking across the square and you're thinking, hey, look, there's, that's Todd over there. You know why you recognize me? Because you've seen me before. How do you think I'm going to know you in heaven? I'm going to know you in heaven and recognize you because I recognize you now. Your, our human bodies are forever. Get used to it. Suck it up. I'll come back to that in a moment. Our resurrected bodies will also not experience present limitations. This is nice, and I love preaching this. Our resurrected bodies will be transformed and they will not be limited to the laws of nature. 
After Jesus' resurrection, he was able to enter rooms with the doors closed. Listen to what John says. On the evening of that day, the day of resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them. And then it says, eight days later, eight days later, just in case we weren't thinking of the same event. Eight days later, the same thing happens. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be upon you. I would imagine they would need a little bit of peace. The point is that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared and disappeared at will. Listen to what it says in Luke, if you don't believe me. It says this, and their eyes were open, talking about the two on the road to Emmaus, and they recognized him and he vanished. Poof. Now, the other thing you need to know is this. Now, this is good news and bad news as well. Um, we are told that after the resurrection, Jesus was able to eat, but there's no indication that he needed to eat. And listen to the language in Luke 24. Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself touch me and see. We've already read that part earlier. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while he was, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, I'm hungry. When I'm feeling a little peckish, the first thing I say is, I'm feeling hungry. Notice what it says. He says, have you anything to eat? And they gave them a piece of broiled fish, one of the best lines in the New Testament. And then it says he took it and ate it before them. Now, the good news as well is that our resurrected bodies will not get sick, will not be weak, and we will not die. We are forever. But not only that, again, I want to come back to it, that our bodies, your body, my body, short, tall, petite, big boned, whatever it is, and our issues with the fact that we look in the mirror and we're not that fond of what we see has more to do with sin and being fallen and living in a fallen world and all that jazz and undisciplined. I'm not getting into that. But our human bodies are forever. Do you know what that means? It means this. Paul says these words, and these are important words as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Talking about Jesus. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Let me tell you something. We used to sing a song 100 years ago. Well, 100 years ago in Kevin's life. Um, We'll talk it over in the sweet by and by. No, we won't. We'll know it. The only thing we're going to do in the sweet by and by is talk about the grace and the love of God in Jesus Christ. And how magnificent our God is. But we're going to know some stuff. It's just going to be automatically uploaded to us to use vernacular. But you and I are forever. That God's love for us, listen now, follow me, this is important. God's love for us is so personal and so um, particular that there is only one of us in the entire world and our fingerprints prove it. 
You are unique. God only made one of you. And God was so amazed at what he made, whether we're tall or short or petite or big boned or whatever it is, God was so impressed by what he made. He said, this is beautiful. This is magnificent. And I am going to make sure that this lasts forever and ever and ever because that being is out of this world. But we don't feel like that, do we? We see the warts and the bumps and the attitudes and the dispositions. We see the rolls and we see the scars and the lines and the wrinkles. And I don't know if these things are going to be there or not. I doubt it. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you. The Pastor Kevin, God thinks that you're so amazing that he only made one like you, and we're all thankful for that, by the way. He only made one like you, and when he made you, he said, man, this is such an impressive piece of work. I'm only making one like it, and that one is going to live forever and ever. That's what God thinks of you. That's what God thinks of me, and we may not like it. But here's the other thing. Pastor Kevin... The best version of you is you. When we start, when Pastor Kevin, forgive me, I can use you, right, without making, when Pastor Kevin starts acting like me or acting like you, you know what? He's dishonoring God. The best version of Pastor Kevin, the best version of you is not you being somebody else or me trying to be somebody else. The best version of you is you. And when we act like somebody else and we are not ourselves, it is unbecoming of someone made in the image of God, someone whom God loves particularly and personally, and unbecoming of somebody who loves God. That's what John is telling us in this. So Pastor Scott... Would you bring the team back? And I want us all to stand. And you know why I want us to stand? Because they're going to sing that song again. They're going to sing it, not you. I know. Didn't you want to sing? I stand amazed in the presence really bad. Oh, I wanted to sing it. But here's what I want you to do. They're going to sing it. And what I want you to do is stand in the presence of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. That God loves you personally and particularly. And he sent Jesus to die for you personally and particularly. And there is only one of you in the universe. In the universe. There's nobody else like you. And you, you unique person, you, you are forever. You are forever. I am forever. So think about that. Matter of fact, you may want to close your eyes to think about that. But think about the line, I stand, Lord, I am amazed. 
that you only made one like me. And that I am so beautiful and I am so worthy in your estimation that you want Todd Manuel to live forever and ever and ever. And your love for me is particular and personal. And that's why Jesus came and died for me personally and me particularly. And so, Lord, how could I not stand amazed, amazed at the extravagant love of God? Pastor Scott. in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean do it again in the wonderful, extravagant, generous, gracious, overwhelming. How you love us and how you made us with such love to be who we're supposed to be. Help us, oh God, we pray, to walk in your love in your extravagance, in your goodness, in your graciousness, 
in your generousness. And Lord, I pray as we come into this Christmas season that these words will penetrate in our hearts and will be replayed back to us by your Holy Spirit. You only made one of us and it was so beautiful and so perfect and so wonderful that you decided that there would only be one and that it should live forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen, church.